This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources said it has no current release date for a new wolf management plan for the state, the Associated Press reports. The DNR originally planned for the new plan to undergo public review this past spring, but so far the committee tasked with drafting a new plan has not produced anything. The current plan puts a cap on the state's wolf population at 350 animals, and it is currently estimated that there are around 1,100 wolves in Wisconsin. While wolf hunt supporters have cited that number as justification for hunting these animals, a federal judge placed wolves on the endangered species list in February. That action once again prohibited wolf hunting in several states, including Wisconsin. In another loss for 2020 presidential election probe special counsel Michael Gableman, a Dane County judge requested a request to recuse said judge from presiding over a related lawsuit. Gableman claims Judge Frank Remington, who is presiding over one of the open records lawsuits against Gableman, has shown, quote, apparent or actual bias, unquote, against Gableman. He further accused Remington of being a partisan advocate in the case. Remington rejected the request for recusal yesterday, saying that Gableman did not provide any proof of bias. A Dane County judge has thrown out a lawsuit against current and former Madison Alders, along with former Mayor Paul Soglin, for removing monuments honoring Confederate soldiers at Forest Hill Cemetery. The Confederate Rest Monument was erected in 1906 to commemorate 140 prisoners of the Civil War who died at Camp Randall. After the monument was removed in 2017, local attorney Todd Hunter sued former Mayor Paul Soglin as well as 22 current and former Common Council members over this action. The judge dismissed the lawsuit today, ruling that, among other things, Hunter did not have adequate standing in the case. After a tense community meeting last night, the owner of the Essen House, Come Back In, and Up North Restaurants will be shutting down amplified outdoor music. The Capital Times reports that Essen House does not have an outdoor amplified music permit and was using outdoor concerts seven days a week. Neighbors of these downtown Madison restaurants say they were being blasted out of their homes, with a decibel reader maxing out at 84 decibels at one residence. That's just about as loud as a garbage disposal. Glenway Woods on Madison's west side is looking to get some needed improvements, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The city's Parks Division is working to develop a management and sustainability plan for the woods to review existing amenities and uses and identify any future improvements. A study is set to be conducted in association with the National Park Service, which will then be presented to the Park Commission early next year. The City of Madison's Food Scrap Recycling Program is off to a roaring start, having already collected 1,444 pounds of food scraps for composting. For those counting, that's just under 100 pounds less than the combined weight of the Green Bay Packers offensive line. This program, which started last month, is still collecting food scraps at both the South Madison Farmers Market and the Eastside Farmers Market every Tuesday. The program will run until September 27th. And now on to today's top stories. Madison's Community Alternative Response Program, or CARES, was first introduced in the summer of 2020 and implemented last fall. This program dispatches teams of crisis workers and paramedics to certain 911 calls for nonviolent mental health emergencies instead of police. Now, the CARES program is set to expand, adding another team to its staff and expanding access throughout the city. WORT producer Nate Wuggiehout and reporter DeMorian Thompson have the story. 
The city of Madison announced today that the city's CARES program is expanding, adding a second response team and a second station to serve Madison's south and west sides. The new station, located in the old town of Madison Municipal Building at 2120 Fish Hatchery Road, will allow CARES to serve even more Madison residents, says Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. This expansion will increase the number of calls that CARES is able to respond to. And this location, particularly being so close to the Beltline, will also help us to get to patients across town and shorten the response times to the west and south sides of Madison. CARES, or Community Alternative Response Emergency Services, is a multi-agency program combining the county, city, Madison's fire and police departments, and Journey Mental Health to dispatch crisis workers and paramedics to certain nonviolent 911 calls instead of police. The teams of two are trained in de-escalation, suicide prevention, and trauma-informed care. They are currently stationed at Fire Station 3 on Willie Street and operate from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays. Here's DeMorian Thompson. While the program originally only answered calls in the city's central region area around the Isthmus, in March they announced that the single Willie Street station would be answering calls throughout all of Madison. Now only around 40% of CARES calls take place in the central region. Attorney General Josh Call says that even law enforcement like CARES as it frees up their own time. I mean, you know, one of the topics that I hear the most about from law enforcement officers in Wisconsin is the need to reform our broken emergency detention system. Uh, across the state, uh, there is a lack of resources to fund crisis response. And often, law enforcement officers find themselves transporting individuals in crisis long distances, frequently to uh, the Winnebago Mental Health Institute, when individuals are in crisis. Mayor Rose Conway says that CARES has so far been a success. As of yesterday, CARES has responded to 674 calls bringing critical help to those experiencing crises in this year of growth and innovation. Sarah Hendrickson is a social worker with Journey Mental Health. She says the long-term goal is to further expand access. I think long-term, we would like to see that this becomes a service that is available 24-7, just like our other emergency responder services, like police, EMS, and fire. I think that's a long way down the road, um, but that's kind of our eventual sky-high goal. The expanded CARES program is scheduled to go into service next week. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. And I'm Damarion Thompson. The tail end of summer marks the beginning of bear hound training season in Wisconsin, during which hunters prepare their dogs for the fall bear hunting season. One wildlife advocate says the hunting method not only puts bears at risk, but can cause serious adverse effects to other Wisconsin wildlife. Jonah Chester from Wisconsin News Connection has more. Over the next several weeks, Wisconsin's bear hunters will be training their hounds on free-roaming black bears in preparation for this fall's bear hunting season. Wisconsin's bear hounding season goes from mid-September to mid-October, but the bear hound training period starts in July and runs through August. During training and the main hounding season, hunters use bait to attract bears. 
Melissa Smith with Friends of the Wisconsin Wolf and Wildlife says bait traps, which can be set months in advance, can spread disease among other wildlife. These bear baits don't just attract bears, okay? All wildlife likes high-fat, high-sugar foods. You're, you're congregating wildlife, which from a wildlife disease perspective, is not good. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources estimates the state's bear population is upwards of 24,000, and hunters harvested about 3,800 bears last year. According to the DNR, the fall hunt helps curb bear numbers to prevent human-bear conflict. But Smith contends hunters and their hounds can also be a nuisance to property owners in rural areas. It's a claim backed up by a February investigation by the Wisconsin Examiner, which detailed local law enforcement's struggles to prevent clashes between the two groups. Smith contends Wisconsin is more permissive than other states when it comes to bear hounding and baiting, which attracts out-of-state folks into northern Wisconsin, where bears are most populous. This has been increasing over the years. So very limited places you can go to do this practice anymore because the agencies found that it was unregulated, it was unhealthy for wildlife. In a statewide poll conducted by the DNR in 2018, more than 75% of respondents indicated they think bears, quote, help keep nature in balance. And more than half said they believe Wisconsin should have as many bears as the habitat will support. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Today's heat in Madison is going to hang around along with some possible rain and thunderstorms moving into this weekend. With more about what to expect, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis. Things are heating up in Madison right now, and we should be at our hottest point of the day. Temperatures are sitting at 87 degrees, but with the heat index, it is feeling around 90 degrees. Humidity is sitting at right around 51%, and winds are coming from south-southwest at 16 miles per hour. As the sun goes down, temperatures will be dropping, but the humidity will continue to rise, making the heat index show a few degrees warmer of what the actual temperatures will be outside. This leaves a slight chance for rain, but likely it will just be cloudy. It's a good time to turn on your air conditioning because these hot and humid days are not looking to go away. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are all looking to be in the mid to upper 80s. Saturday will be breaking the path of the 80s, possibly getting up into the 90s with a 50% chance for thunderstorms later into the evening. The UV index tomorrow is looking to possibly reach 8 here in Madison, which is in the high category. With a mix of heat and high chance of getting sunburn, try to limit your time outdoors. When you are outdoors, protect your skin and drink plenty of water. Hay fever is breaking its way into homes this year. If you have allergies, be aware that tomorrow and Thursday's grass pollen counts are both in the high categories. So carry those tissues around with you to help stop any issues. You may start to feel yourself get more tired as the sun rises at 5.36 a.m. and does not set until 8.21 p.m. But we still get more light as those times are when the sun fully rises and sets. Even though the sun is set below the horizon, you can still see above it. Hence why we're getting that light. The public water testing is now testing okay, and it's the perfect time to make your way back into the water as Lake Monona's water temperature is sitting at a warm 74 degrees, just in time to take a dip into the beautiful weekend. Here in Madison with your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
In Wisconsin, media are often given access to high-profile court cases to promote an open and transparent judicial system. But in the case of Kari Sanford, the presiding Dane County Court judge ruled that no recording or broadcasting of the trial would be allowed. Dan Shelley is the president and CEO of the Radio Television Digital News Association, a national organization of broadcasting journalists. His recent commentary for Your Right to Know, a column from the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, outlines this issue. Shelley spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout earlier today. So, Dan, just to start things off here, give us a little bit of background. What's going on with Judge Ellen Burrs? Well, I can't speak to her generally. I can just speak to the ruling she issued in the Kerry Sanford case, Wisconsin versus Sanford. Uh, the recent murder trial in Dane County in which uh, he was ultimately convicted of murdering his uh, ex-girlfriend's parents uh, on the University of Wisconsin campus. Uh, and those rulings were misguided. They were contrary to state Supreme Court rules uh, and to the history and tradition of the live and recorded broadcast of criminal proceedings in the state of Wisconsin that date back to 1979. And then, so all of this sort of comes from, uh, there's a group, a coalition of uh, media outlets here in Wisconsin, including Wisconsin Broadcasters Association and uh, several TV stations here in Madison who were asking for access to this trial, and they were told by both the judge and another judge uh, in the fifth uh, federal courts there saying, no, uh, we will not allow a recording of this trial. Why did Judge Burrs say no to any recordings of the trial? Uh, Was there a reason why she didn't want it to be recorded, especially sort of looking that several other high-profile cases here in Wisconsin have been broadcast? Yeah, our coalition, which also uh, included the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, uh, wrote uh, a motion uh, to Judge Burrs requesting uh, microphone and camera and live streaming access to the Sanford trial. Uh, We also requested a hearing on the matter. She denied the hearing. She denied the request, uh, issued a scathing order banning everything except one still news camera, still photography news camera from the courtroom during the trial proceedings uh, and proceeded, although she did set up a media room where journalists could access a closed circuit uh, broadcast of the trial. uh, It was routinely monitored by sheriff's deputies to ensure that no one was recording anything that came through that closed circuit video and audio transmission. Uh, After she issued this scathing Uh, And as I said, misguided, in my view, uh, order, barring cameras and microphones and live streaming. Uh, Our coalition wrote to her supervisor, uh, the chief judge of Wisconsin's Fifth Judicial Circuit, asking him to direct her to reconsider. Uh, He refused to do so. And thus the trial was held uh, without uh, the public at large, except for the few folks who were able to actually have the time and the resources uh, and the availability to sit in the courtroom during the trial, the rest of the public was denied its right and need to see how the murder trial was conducted. 
And so why is this so important? Why is this an issue? What's the benefit of having these sort of recordings of the trial? Well, in the first place, the Constitution of the United States guarantees defendants public trials. And in the 21st century, we believe a public trial includes live broadcast and live streaming where there is an interest to do so on the part of journalists who are working, by the way, uh, on behalf of the public. Uh, this really is an issue of public access to court more than anything else. And uh, I will tell you, highly unusual to have such a scathing uh, denial uh, of such access, particularly if you consider the fact uh, that there have been a number of other recent high-profile trials in Wisconsin and in nearby Minnesota that have gone off without a hitch, uh, most notably the Kyle Rittenhouse trial last November in Kenosha County, uh, and in Minnesota, the Kimberly Potter and Derek Chauvin trials. Uh, Derek Chauvin, of course, the former Minneapolis police officer who was convicted of murdering George Floyd uh, in 2000, uh, 2020. rather. Uh, in fact, Judge Peter Cahill... Uh, who presided over that Chauvin trial, where live broadcast, live streaming was permitted, uh, later wrote to uh, a Minnesota State Judicial uh, Commission uh, saying that he had been a career-long skeptic of cameras, microphones, live streaming, etc., of murder trials. But the Chauvin experience, the Chauvin trial experience, convinced him that allowing such access is beneficial uh, to all parties involved, and to the public. Now, Dan, so what does the law actually say here in Wisconsin in regards to uh, recording a courtroom? What I know there's a Supreme Court ruling back in the 70s. What did that say? There's a judicial a Supreme Court uh, policy that was instituted in 1979 that says that cameras and microphones can uh, broadcast trials of public interest uh, with the judge's permission. Uh, and as I note uh, and have noted uh, since the Sanford trial occurred, on many occasions, Wisconsin has a history of being transparent with live uh, and recorded broadcasts of criminal proceedings. And not just Kyle Rittenhouse, but you go all the way back 30 years ago to Jeffrey Dahmer's sanity trial in Milwaukee County. Uh, in that case, there was such a tremendous public interest uh, that the judge in the case uh, decided to go to great expense uh, to ensure that that sanity trial could be broadcast live, and in fact it was, and it was a cathartic experience for everyone in Milwaukee, everyone impacted across the country by what Jeffrey Dahmer did, uh, and uh, ultimately served a great public service. Uh, then in the mid-2000s, former Packers tight end Mark Chimura was charged with sexual assault and child enticement. That trial, despite the fact that the alleged victims in the case were uh, sensitive individuals in, in that they were underage girls at the time of the alleged offense, Chimura was uh, not convicted in that case. Uh, that trial was allowed to be broadcast live and radio and television stations uh, because of the extreme public interest, did broadcast that trial, but used extreme care to make sure that the identities of the juvenile alleged victims were not revealed. It can be done responsibly. It is always done responsibly. 
And there's not a logical reason in the world why in the Kerry Sanford case, uh, it should not have occurred there. And what about federally? Are there any federal laws regarding recording in a courtroom? Unfortunately, our federal court system, as it relates to cameras and microphones and live streaming of uh, legal proceedings in U.S. district courts, appeals courts, and the Supreme Court, uh, is stuck in the 19th century uh, and the early 20th century before there even was radio and television, uh, and certainly before there was the Internet. Federal courts almost always exclude cameras and microphones from their proceedings. The Supreme Court doesn't allow it, though they do allow live audio streaming in cases of uh, extreme public importance. During the pandemic, they widened that rule to allow all uh, oral argument sessions, all public sessions of the court to be streamed. Uh, But uh, aside from that, uh, except for a few experimental efforts that were undertaken in some federal circuits, uh, mostly at the appellate level, federal courts do not accommodate, do not allow for cameras and microphones or live streaming of judicial proceedings. And Dan, do you just have any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to share with me on your article here? Anything that we didn't get to? This is the 21st century. This is the year 2022. If not now, when? It has been shown time and time again that the live recorded, live streamed broadcast or otherwise transmitted um, proceedings in court cases can be done successfully, successfully balancing the rights of the defendant, the rights of the prosecutors in the state, and most important, the public. The public has a right and a need to know how prosecutors are conducting their cases, what defenses are put forward in criminal trials, uh, and there is absolutely no reasonable or logical explanation for excluding the public at large from court proceedings, except in rare situations when there are very sensitive matters involved, uh, be it a, a sexual assault type of case or whether it involves sensitive individuals such as juveniles. I've been talking with Dan Shelley, president and CEO of the Radio Television Digital News Association and author of the recent article, Judge Was Wrong to Bar Recordings of Trial. Dan, thank you again for talking with me here today. Thank you. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Sam Ness, a 24-year-old musician from Sauk City, left home when he was 18 to travel and play music on street and pubs around the world. Since then, he's recorded five albums and has been a Madison Area Music Award nominee and winner. His fifth album, City Lights and Smoke, is out this Saturday, July 23rd. You can catch his album release show this Saturday at the Majestic Theater at 7 p.m. I sat down with Ness to chat about tour life, slowing down during the pandemic, and his new album out this weekend. Sam Ness, welcome back to the studio. 
Thank you so it's much. So for good to me. have you. It's so good to be back. It's crazy to catch you not on the road because you're always on the road. Always. It, it always. Yeah. <laughs> for the listeners who have not heard you before, let's let's go back a bit. So you're from Sauk City, and that's where you kind of cut your teeth in your high school music program, theater. Yeah, a know, bunch of musical stuff and musicals. show choiry stuff and. Tell me more about your origin story and your music in Madison, how it started. Yeah, I found a love for music in in the theater world and was kind of learning how to play guitar, learning how to write songs just as kind of a, a therapy, I guess, as just an angsty teenager. Following high school, I couldn't quite figure what path I, I wanted to pursue wholeheartedly. And I figured if you're not going to chase something passionately, it's just not the right time yet. And so I decided to travel instead. So I was ready to leave town, but I was too broke to leave. And so I made a Facebook post that just said, Hey, everyone, um, if there was by chance, uh, you know, if I made a GoFundMe, would anybody help me get somewhere else? Someone that I hadn't really met sent me a message and was like, "Hey, well, where do you want to where do you want to go to?" And I said, "Well, I'm not I'm not really sure." And as I was on the phone with them, I was scrolling through Google Maps, and the word Edinburgh came up, and I heard it in a passenger song once. So I said, "I'm going to go to Edinburgh," and uh, she's like, "All right, well, I believe in what you're doing." And I, I saw you perform in show choir, and I, I want to help you. So I just bought your ticket for you. Let me know when you want to come home. And I was like, yeah, well, I won't. And then, uh, <laughs> and then off I went. I went with my guitar, a couple hundred bucks, and this big idea of, of you know making it, whatever that means. And I was wrong. I ended up broke and jumping couches with random people that I had met in hostels, and sleeping in the woods, and sleeping under bridges, and slowly learned how to be a full-time street performer. There's a lot of science and art to it. And I fell in love with that lifestyle and I've been traveling and playing ever since. What did you learn about yourself making that work? And what did you learn about the people that you met? Yeah. I mean, I think that that was the biggest, the biggest takeaway is learning about yourself. When you take away all the other variables, when I'm in Madison and I'm having a bad day, I'm going to stop by the tip top tavern. I'm going to see my friends. I'm going to eat a Reuben. I'm going to do all the things that I'm familiar with that make me feel good. When you take away every other variable except for yourself, you say, okay, well now there's Sam in Bangkok. What does he do when he's in a bad mood? You just figure it out. And so you learn about yourself so much. As the trails led outward, they also led inward. The, the more I traveled, the more I explored you know, myself. I, I made it in a way that I didn't even have a place to stay the first night intentionally when I got there. And I was just this like fresh 18-year-old, this big-eyed kid that was wandering around Edinburgh trying to find a hostel. <laughs> Since I've known you, it's always been go, go, go. Because you turned 18, you went to Europe, you came back, you did another tour. Like You're always... Just go, go, go. And then the pandemic happens and you're forced to just kind of stay for a bit. How did that go for you? It was like whiplash. It was, it was this huge shock for me. When everything did hit, I had 40, 50 shows cancel within the span of a couple of days. After a while, I just stopped answering my phone. I was like, okay, I get it. We're not doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, uh, in late 2019, kind of just going into that, I had just written a song called Slow It Down, urging, almost begging myself to let myself slow down. I've been running up the miles I've been burning through these days I've been wandering a while So much time has slipped away I 
It was kind of a wake-up call because I was like, all right, slow down. Great, great in theory. And then I was like, how am I going to book more shows? <laughs> and then when COVID hit, I was like, okay, maybe take a note from myself. Like, maybe this is the right time. Give me some room. This room is spinning now. Give me some room. This room is spinning now. Slow it down. So I ended up going to another extreme. I was like, well, if I'm going to be, you know, alone and sit with myself, I might as well do it. And so I made a Facebook post <laughs> again. And I was like, hey, everyone, uh, society sucks. I think I want to leave. Does anyone have a, a cabin in the woods that I could use to get away? And someone commented and said, yeah. We have this little cabin in the North Woods, and it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we. And you said perfect. I said perfect, yeah. And so I went up there for the winter. I locked myself up there. I think it was like four months. I took a 50-pound bag of potatoes, 50-pound bag of onions, 50-pound bag of rice, a bunch of venison. And, you know, I, was, I wasn't exactly uh, desolate, but, um, but it was still removed enough that I could have that real kind of alone uh, shock that I wanted. That's so interesting to me because I feel like in the pandemic, people, when they did become more isolated, they craved connection in some way, just with other people and whatnot. But you seem to thrive <laughs> to settle into that, not loneliness, because it doesn't sound like you're lonely. Yeah. You're just content with yourself. Well, that was the thing. There was so much to process from being on the road for almost six straight years. I didn't stop. The longest I think I was ever in one place was like two and a half weeks over mm. those five, six years. Then to be alone for four months, just kind of myself and my thoughts, I wanted to take that time and process it. So while I was there, I was working on a record that I ended up calling The Cabin. And it talks about that a little bit, some of the um, processing the road and processing what changes I haven't even seen happening in myself because you can't see those changes until you slow down enough to to notice them. What do we have to look forward to with this album? Well, this one's so different in I've always seen an album kind of like a painting whereas a live show is more of a photograph. I'm selling these paintings that don't look anything like me. In this album, you know, <laughs> I play a lot of fun party shows without any recorded music that's more driving. And so that's this one. It's a little bit more gritty, some awesome big electric guitars and screaming fiddle solos, big drums and aux percussion and backing vocals. And uh, it's just so much, so many more layers and such a more accessible album to play live in front of audiences like at the majestic a lot of these people in the band uh, which with the majestic i think i'll be playing with an eight piece that night wow. so a lot of folks uh, from all over wisconsin too and some of them still haven't met each other which is kind of fun like some of the parts we added uh later on but uh they they were my and, and are my session players that i sometimes get to steal for fun nights sick and the name of the album uh, this is called City Lights and Smoke. Sam Ness, thank you so much. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. It's good to see you, Sarah. Gravel roads and blister toes gonna lead me home. Gonna find a cold night to warm this heart of stone. Gonna find the thing that's not a thing that won't give me anything but... 
Give me exactly what I search for It's not a thing I hope to find But rather something that I found in my mind It's what I found that moves me on To go one more step beyond While fishing can be a relaxing activity for people, it can cause major issues with wildlife. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains what happened when a bald eagle was snagged by a fishing lure. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dayton County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about a really fun case that came in over this weekend about a bald eagle that was stuck in a fishing hook and lure and line. And it's not an easy subject to talk about because I'm sure there's plenty of WRT listeners who are avid sportsmen, fishermen, outdoor recreation folks. But sometimes I think we forget that the things that we do as humans really can impact other species that share our world and our environment. And at times that actually can harm them, even though it might be really fun for us. We don't really think about the repercussions to the larger, you know, biological ecosystem or those individuals that live in it, too. I wanted to start by saying we have an amazing team in Dane County of dedicated animal service officers that are part of the county work effort of public health that go pick up animals, usually domestic animals, you know, dogs and cats, critters. You know, sometimes there's a surrender or there's a, you know, they have to go into a situation where maybe there's a hoarding, you know, situation in a house other things but you know they're wonderful officers that really care about wildlife on that team and although there is no funding that comes from Dane County or public health or anything those animal service officers they really take time out of their day instead of bringing a stray cat into the humane society they might also bring us a bird like a Canada goose or um, an injured squirrel or something and so um That team has been very dedicated to really, you know, knowing that wildlife is important. And so, you know, for them, they they are just they're just awesome. And one of those animal service officers really just went above and beyond in this last week. This was off site of her duties. You know, it was in a totally different county. It was just a friend of a friend that had found a bald eagle. And that bird had been stuck with this giant fishing lure through the hook of the beak and into the wing. So, you know, as a private citizen, she was like, oh, that you know, I I know a place that maybe would take it. And so with that dialogue, our Humane Society was able to get that bird transported to us. So in the wee hour of the the night, you know, 1130 at night, this juvenile, beautiful, probably female bald eagle comes in to the Wildlife Center, dropped off, and then we were able to triage the case right away. And the fishing lure was, you know, this large pink fishing lure with a couple of hooks on there, different barbs. So there were three different barbs on each side. So again, one side was in the mouth, one side had been stuck to the wing 
thing. And that kind of injury required, uh, you know, immediate medical attention from a veterinarian. So our UW-Madison special species folks, uh, Dr. Thurber helped us out to actually come in on a weekend day to put the bird under sedation. And we worked together to get that, that hook and lure out and evaluate the eagle while it was sedated, which is, you know, obviously very helpful because they're strong and they're feisty and they don't like us manipulating them, especially when there's a very painful injury like a hook being embedded in the tissue. So, you know, for birds like eagles who definitely spend a lot of time out in the outdoors, uh, hunting things like fish, they obviously eat things like deer, you know, deer carcasses on the side of the road or raccoons, but fish is definitely a big one. And so living near water, nesting near water, they're going to come into contact with, you know, spent lead, fishing hooks, lures, line, all that kind of stuff more often than some other species might. So to see such a beautiful and young eagle stuck together in such a painful way, you know, on the ground, imagine you know, yourself in some forms being on the ground, stuck together with these, you know, metal pieces stuck in you. You're not able to free yourself or get away, you know, stuck on the ground, just waiting, basically could have either starved to death or been predated upon by something else. Like that really is a terrible way to go. And so I think that stresses the importance of why wildlife rehabilitators are here and why we do what we do as an occupation is to help those animals that really can't help themselves knowing that we've caused some sort of situation that have harmed them. So we're very lucky that the surgery went really well. You know, a barb on a hook is not easy to get out of the skin. So, you know, it takes a lot of dedicated cleaning, clipping. The barbs are meant to stay in. So for those of you that have ever fished, if the, you know, fish grabs onto it, you have to back the hook out. Well, in this case, it had been stuck in the wing, you know, so far into the tissue that the barbs had to be cut and pulled through the other side. And if that hook had stayed in there, and there were three of them, you know, then if you didn't have any intervention, it could have healed around it, but there could have been an abscess. And then that causes infection, which could learn, lead to sepsis sometime, depending on where it is. Fishing line is usually worse because it will wrap around a limb a lot of times. So we'll see geese with restriction injuries. And then the entire, you know, leg might become amputated or a toe could be amputated. Luckily for this bird, it did not get worse. And we were able to intervene quick enough, but it definitely had been in there for a couple of days. So, you know, this bird is now on antibiotics and needs pain medications and, you know, obviously had a couple of days probably where it wasn't eating. So it definitely is very dangerous. And knowing that the hook on the other side was in the mouth, we've got punctures in the roof of the mouth and the bottom part of the mandible and the mouth lining even created a small fissure on one side of the inner part of the beak. So not fun to have your mouth kind of painfully, you know, stuck to barbs that a you know, a fish might have eaten. And what if that bird had swallowed it? So ingestion of fish hooks is so dangerous. And we have had many, many, many cases of that where, uh, you know, according to Wildlife Center of Virginia, who is um, a really great resource for wildlife questions and for statistics, um, you know, from their records, like 60% of the cases that end up being ingestions of hooks, sinkers, lead, that kind of stuff, it's like 60% of them either end up dying from internal bleeding or they have to be euthanized for the extensive amount of injuries. It's just a lot of tissue damage, pain, death. It's it's not great. So I highly recommend people checking out, you know, their website. They've got a really great Q&A kind of section about fishing tackle threats to wildlife. Um, it's wildlifecenter.org slash fishing tackle threats wildlife with a hash in between each of those words. But if you go to wildlifecenter.org, then if you search for fishing tackle, it should come up in a Google search. Just really cool to be able to at least read about it, but also so sad. And 
And a happier note, we are glad that this eagle is hopefully, you know, going to be one of those that potentially makes it. So we're able to hopefully move her out to a large flight enclosure here as soon as we get avian influenza testing results back. Hopefully it will be negative. There's a lot that had to go into this whole process with x-rays and blood work and examinations and everything. You know, this isn't something that we are funded for like we you know considering the amount of vet time that went into having them come on a weekend on a sunday morning uh work for a couple of hours with you know uh you know i myself was able to help with this so certified rehabber and you know a giant bird which takes a lot of medications like this is an expensive bird but we also feel that that is an important bird to to have helped and so that it will survive and hopefully be released into the wild and say hey thanks you know that i I made a mistake and grabbed a fish hook or accidentally flew into one or whatever else it was and maybe they'll remember in the future maybe not to ingest fishing tackle or try to eat a lure because they will remember back on this time where it was a very painful and scary experience but we hope that no animal has to go through that and that's why we talk about it for educational purposes and for radio and everything else so Please wish this eagle luck. Thank our animal service officers in Dane County who aren't, you know, again, aren't required to pick up wildlife. They just do it if they've got time available. They are wonderful people. Um, And then just know that wildlife rehabilitators are here to help when we can. And it's not always easy. And sometimes there's more patients than we can even handle in our area, but we do the best that we can. And so if you ever have a question, please feel free to reach out. Um, We will try to answer your question as best as possible or get that animal into care or refer to somewhere that has available space. So our number is 608-287-3235. And otherwise, thank you for listening for this story about our eagle with fishing lures stuck in it. And I hope that we encourage people to help clean up those items in the wild, get rid of the fishing line and tackle that might get stuck on trees and branches. So clean up that garbage so that we don't have more eagles coming into our care that have to be (laughs) uh, helped through surgery and other things. And so thank you uh, for listening to Wildlife Weekly here on WORT. We hope you enjoyed this segment and we'll see you next time. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The first images from the James Webb Telescope have been released, but what happens next? This week on Radio Astronomy, host Allison Arena tells us what the telescope is searching for going forward and who is able to use the telescope. As you may have seen, The first images from the James Webb Space Telescope were released last week, much to the excitement of astronomers and non-astronomers alike. With JWST being the largest and most powerful telescope ever launched into space, 
it's no surprise that the images are absolutely jaw-dropping. We encourage listeners to follow along with last week's walkthrough of one of those first images if you missed it. This is Radio Astronomy, and I'm your host, Allison Arena, here to fill you in on what's next for JWST. Last week's images marked the end of the telescope's commissioning phase, the observatory's period of setup and calibration. Now that the component instruments are all science ready, two kinds of observation programs are currently underway. The first class of projects are the public early release science missions. These runs use the telescope to examine a wide range of astronomical disciplines, galaxies, exoplanets, solar system studies, and stellar physics. Every one of the early release science programs will have their full scientific data released to the public once the missions are complete. That means raw images and measurements from every camera and tool on the spacecraft unedited. The other kind of program are closed missions. These projects were selected in two ways. They were either granted to astronomers who helped develop the telescope and its systems, or they were selected through a competitive peer review process. Most astronomers selected for closed project programs were from the United States, with more than 60% of missions being led by US-based researchers. Closed projects do not necessarily have to release their observational results along with any research findings, unlike the public missions. The expectations are high for any of these JWST projects since the telescope's legendary level of detail is expected to provide significantly better data than we've had access to before. With so many institutions and research groups vying for time using the telescope, the public missions are particularly important. The early release science missions will be the source for most scientists outside of larger teams to learn how to work with and process JWST data, a skill set which will only increase in importance. This telescope is planned to continually observe for the next 20 years. Over the long term, JWST is specifically intended to be used in four general areas. We have some understanding of what the universe was like only a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. During this time, Protons and neutrons were joining up with electrons to create hydrogen, so there were very few objects emitting visible light at this point. JWST is intended to get a good look at the very first stars and galaxies and how their earliest formation fits into the evolution of the universe as a whole. The next area continues with galaxies. Since JWST is the largest space telescope ever made, with a mirror diameter of 21 feet, which is about seven times the light collecting area that Hubble has, it's perfect for searching for very faint galaxies, as well as getting a better look at the brighter ones. With this data, we hope to supplement our understanding of how galaxies are created and how they evolve over time. This isn't a new idea, of course, but JWST will let us peer further into space than ever before and see much fainter and earlier galaxies, filling out our current understanding of galactic evolution. The next subfield is stars. So stars form within clouds of dust and gas, and while visible light can't pass through that dust, infrared light, which is what JWST sees, can. Dust can also be found prominently in forming solar systems. With JWST's capability to pierce through dust, we'll be able to learn more about the life cycle of stars as well. Moreover, the instrument's incredible sensitivity can give us a better understanding of the smallest, dimmest stars in our galaxy. Brown dwarves, a kind of weak, failed baby star, are one of the most anticipated targets for the new telescope. And last, but certainly not least, 
JWST will be used in the study of planets, both in and outside of our solar system. It can observe exoplanets by watching distant stars that dim slightly as a planet passes in front of them. When this happens, it also measures the spectrum of light emitted by the background star. This way, the thin atmosphere of the planet is projected into the star's spectrum, and astronomers can separate the star's light from the planets to learn more about what makes up the planet's atmosphere. Within these spectra, astronomers can find signs of certain elements, and possibly the building blocks of life. Here at UW-Madison, many of us in the astronomy department are eagerly awaiting the release of more data. The images we've seen so far are tantalizing hints of what's to come. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Radio Astronomy, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Demorian Thompson with Madeline Plattenberg on special assignment. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors, my co-host Sarah Hopeful, along with Jackie Sandberg and the Radio Astronomy crew. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.